name's Derek Dickinson, and I grew up here, and I appreciate, I just want to say thank you before I get into the message this morning. Appreciate, uh, you know, I've run into Sunday school teachers and uh, Bible Bowl sponsors and people that invested in me as a kid. This church uh, financially helped when I went to seminary, um, when my wife and I felt called to go plant a church in Fairbanks, Alaska, um, which see, you know, I've actually seen 64 below zero. Um, I, I still, to this day, I'm like, Lord, there were lost people in Fiji. I mean, there really were. <laughs> but that was not my calling. And, but this church has been uh, such an outwardly focused uh, look to the next generation, look out to the community, look out to the world. And I just, I just want to say thank you from uh, a daughter church in Fairbanks, Alaska, and we have had a hand. We have tried to keep that DNA alive. We have partnered with the CEA, which is a church planning organization in the Pacific Northwest, and we have partnered um, in some way in planting 30 churches across the Northwest. And so you have not just a daughter church, but lots of granddaughter uh, congregations. So I just wanna say thank you. Um, So let me pray, and we'll get into our message this morning. Dear God, I just thank you for each dear person here. We know that you have a word for them, a word of encouragement, of strengthening, of conviction, of challenge, a calling to help them to move forward. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to what the scripture has to teach us today, that we would be people who are marked by faith, that our lives are inexplainable. You can't explain them without you. Lord, help us to be people of deep compassion, great vision, and love for those around us. In your name, the name of Jesus, amen. I always get a little nervous. I experience a little bit of doubt when I'm in a big church setting. My church tends to be three, 350 people, you know, 475 on Easter. So this is a, a big congregation for me. One of the big churches in Indianapolis that helped us um, as well as Chapel Rock was East 91st Street, and I'll never forget going years ago, I had to go give a little five-minute report in their services, and they had these big jumbotrons up in the balconies, and I had my two older boys at the time, they were kind of young, with me, uh, Joe and Jack, and afterwards I went to them and said, you know, guys, did did I do okay? And Jack, my second boy, he says, he goes, Dad, you were so fat on the Jumbotron. <laughs> and I said, son, you know, the, the camera adds 15 pounds. And Joe said, how many cameras were on you? <laughs> you know, we all struggle with doubts, right? We all have those moments. We're not confident. Um, you know, there's... This text is talking about a missing ingredient for a lot of people in life and in prayer, and that missing ingredient is faith, and we're going to get there. Um, I have recently started watching my wife and I, this show called Master Chef, and I'm not a cooking show kind of guy, but uh, we have a friend, her name's Lizzie, and she's from Fairbanks, a delightful Christian young woman, and she's on the show, so we have been watching this. And on one episode recently, it wasn't her, but one of the uh, contestants actually forgot an ingredient and actually added the wrong ingredient, so they forgot. It was a dessert kind of thing. They forgot sugar and added salt. 
oops, you know, that's not good. And so we're going to look at critical ingredients to make life work. It's not just prayer, and you've heard a lot about prayer in this series, but faith. That is an incredible combination. I want to read you this text. It's Mark chapter 11, verse 20 through 26. But I want to back up and give you a little bit of context just so you get this particular passage. So, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for Passover, and there is what, you know, earlier in the chapter, there is what we call the triumphal entry. And if you have a church background, you know what that is. If you don't, it's, you know, they basically welcomed Jesus, not everybody, obviously, because the leaders of the Jewish nation tended to hate Jesus, but many, many people, a crowd of people welcomed Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one God said was going to come and help people and deal with our sin problem. And so they welcome Jesus. He goes into town. He looks around. He goes to the temple, assesses. He leaves. And then it's the next morning. And the next morning, um, Jesus is coming into town and he sees a fig tree. And the fig tree from a distance is in leaf. And so in essence, it's promising fruit. But as he gets close, he realizes it doesn't have fruit. So it's promising fruit but it doesn't have fruit. And so Jesus curses the tree, puts a curse on it. Now, um, they go to town, they do their thing, they come back to Bethany, and then they're going to go in to town again the next day, and that's where this particular text is. Mark chapter 11, verse 20 through 26. It says, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Now, if I were to circle or highlight one thing in this passage, that would be the one. Have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt it in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, I was reading from the NIV, the New International Version, and so um, the text I was assigned by Casey was 20 through 26. I'll read 26 in a minute. Um, In the NIV, the 20, verse 26 is not there, it's down in a footnote. What that means is there's a textual variance. And so when you look at all the Greek um, texts, you know, that we have, we have different textual families. Um, In the oldest, most reliable, uh, verse 26 is not there, but it is in some of the other ones. And so the New International Version and the ESV, English Standard Version, they put it down on a footnote so that you understand that. Uh, The New American Standard puts it in brackets but puts it up in the body of the text. The King James Version just puts it in the body of the text but doesn't give you any indication that, hey, there is a textual variant here. Now, I want to be very clear. I believe that God's word is without error. It is true in everything that it teaches. Uh, but to give that kind of status to scripture, you have to know what scripture is. And that's why studying textual manuscripts and making sure that we put that status on the right you know, thing is correct. So, um, so there is a textual variant, verse 26. I'll read that in a moment. Now, when we look at this particular passage... I want to go with the image of Jesus as the great physician. 
And Jesus is great physician. I don't know if you've ever had a heart-to-heart, a tough one with a physician, but imagine Jesus, the great physician, sits down and has a heart-to-heart with you. And he gives you some diagnosis of the challenges in your life or the challenges in your prayer life, but your Christian life in general. One I've already mentioned is doubt, and that's clearly mentioned in this particular passage. Um, And what he's going to do is lift up faith as the alternative to doubt having that trust in God. But he mentioned some other things as well I think we should notice. What is his diagnosis? What's the problem? Well, doubt, but then also fruitlessness. Now, the reason I gave you the context so you would understand this. Now, in Mark 11, verse 12 and 13, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, in leaf, so it's promising fruit, He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now in the scripture, in the Old Testament, Israel, or the people of God, that he had this special relationship with, is pictured as a fig tree, a couple different places. And so while Jesus doesn't give us this nice, neat wrap-up explanation, overwhelmingly, most theologians see this particular miracle that Jesus does and, you know, it's a, it's a negative miracle, so it's kind of an odd one, as a picture of judgment on a fruitless Israel. That this people of God, this cherished, precious, covenant people of God that he has worked with, that he sends Messiah to initially, but to all of us as well, even we Gentiles, and yet they were to be a light to the world, and so often they were not. And you can see in their history where God works with them but occasionally judges them. You even see Jesus in his ministry predict a judgment that's coming in AD 70 where the Romans come in and wipe out Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And there's there's theological significance in this because by destroying the temple, they destroyed the sacrificial system. And that was absolutely crucial because Jesus was the final payment. He was the payment for sins. When he's on the cross, he says, it is finished or paid in full. And so there is no longer a need for the Jewish sacrificial system. And so God closes his book on that and our salvation is found in Christ. Our salvation is found in forgiveness of sins. And so this story... This event, most theologians believe, points to Israel and that fruitlessness that they're struggling with. Now, also, we see in this timeline that Jesus goes into town, checks everything out, leaves, comes back, and for the second time, this is my understanding, he does it at the beginning of his ministry, he now does it at the end of his ministry. For the second time, Jesus cleanses the temple. He gets angry. He goes and chases out the money changers. And you might be like, what is going on here? Well, what's happening is they had this court of the Gentiles, this section of the temple. It's the only part of the temple that the Gentiles, that's you and me, unless you are of Jewish descent, could come into and learn about the one true God. And they're coming in, and the Jewish aristocracy, the Jewish leaders, had turned it into this overpriced, 
you know, price gouging market, religious marketplace. And so if you bring your lamb to be sacrificed for your sins, they're going to go, oh, that lamb's not good enough. You got to buy one of ours and you charge, you know, three times the value. And so they're gouging the people who, where they should be doing missionary work, where they should be light, where they should be helping. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he talks about this in his, he quotes in his anger, Isaiah 56 Verse seven, part C, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And see, they had turned it into a den of thieves. That's why Jesus is so angry. That's why he, you know, drives them out and cleanses the temple. And so you see this. Now, um, I want you to think about this idea of fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. How fruitful is your Christian life? And that's a hard question. We don't like looking in the mirror. I don't necessarily, when I get up in the morning, like that first look in the mirror. You know, the goopy eyes and what little hair I have is, you know, all messed up. But you've got to look in the mirror. Is my Christian life bearing fruit? And so, this is part of his diagnosis now, I don't think God ever gives up on us. I think he still loves the Jewish people. I think he's still working with them. We see uh, Jews for Jesus. We see a remnant, Messianic Jews, people who are like uh, of Jewish descent pointing to Jesus Christ. They've accepted him as their Lord and Savior, as their long-awaited Messiah. Um, I appreciate a story from missionary Dr. Bob Bailey in Africa. His church met in a village, and they didn't have a building. They just had a tree, and they met under this tree. Well, this witch doctor who opposed the work of the church went to the tree and very publicly put a curse on this tree and the tree withers. Now, this missionary, Dr. Bob Bailey, he's like, I wasn't sure quite what to do about this because it, it really damaged the reputation of the church and it looked like the witch doctor and what he served was more powerful than the God of the Bible, the one true God. And so Dr. Bailey got his people together and they had a very public service and they went to this tree that they would meet under and they laid hands on the tree and they prayed for God to restore, to resurrect the tree that had withered because of the curse of the witch doctor. Now, what happened was not only did the tree revive and the tree came back and, and did well, that, in a sense, resurrected tree um, is the only tree of its type that would yield its fruit not just once a year, but twice a year. And it was a powerful testimony to the power of God. Now, I think that when we look at this, um, fruitfulness, it can take a long time. It takes time from the time you plant an apple tree to get fruit from it. Had the privilege, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, that our son, our fourth son, Tony, we went to the Chena River, and I got to watch as my son Tony baptized his good friend Cohen, who he had, he's known since he was five years old, and he had, you know, shared the faith over the years and tried to reach out to him, and he got to baptize him into faith in the Chena River. Now, I will tell you, we do have an indoor baptistry at Journey. He wanted to do that. I wouldn't want to do that. The Chena River is very cold even in the summer in Alaska. But, so it was a quick baptism, but it was a baptism. <laughs> and so, are you fruitful? 
That's a good self-evaluation question as we look at this particular text. Jesus wants to look at our life. He sees leaves, promising fruit. Are we fruitful? The second part of the diagnosis that, that could hit a little close to home, maybe even be a little tender, is unforgiveness. So imagine Dr. Jesus pulling out some x-rays and he shows you a large growth in your lungs and says, it looks like cancer, the cancer of unforgiveness. Look at our text, Mark 11, verse 25 and 26. I'm gonna actually read verse 26 this time in brackets from the New American Standard Version. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if, this is verse 26, the variant. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your offenses. Now, Jesus said basically the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is not new material at all. Um, and so it's just debated whether it goes there. Unforgiveness is this incredibly terrible barrier with God. I appreciate author Norman Vincent Peale, and he talked about when he was a, a boy that he, you know, they lived on a farm, and he went out one day, and he somehow found a, he had found a, a cigar, and here he is, he goes out behind the barn, and he smokes the cigar, and then he hears his dad coming, and he's getting the wagon and the horses, and it was, he was going to go to town. And that's a big deal to get to go to town. And so he comes out, tries to play it off like he wasn't smoking a cigar, comes out to his father, and he says, you know, Dad, can I go to town with you? And his father said this. His father said, son, never make a bold request while harboring a smoldering disobedience. I think we need to hear that. Some of us are harboring a smoldering disobedience in the area of unforgiveness and bitterness in our lives. You can probably see that person's face right now in your mind. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to deal with that. Maybe even they're dead and gone and you need to sit down with a mentor or a counselor and let some of this go. We, we're drawn to kind of sticking it to people, aren't we? Getting, getting back at people. I had a buddy in, in college at Taylor University. His name was Neil. And the circus, the traveling circus came to town. And so he bought a ticket for himself and he wanted to take a date. So he asked the first girl. She said no. He asked the second girl. She said no. Asked the third girl. She said no. Asked the fourth girl. She said no. Asked the fifth girl if she would go with him to the, to the circus. She said yes. And before he could stop himself, out of his mouth came, I'm so glad you said yes, you're the fifth girl I've asked. <laughs> oh. Now, she did go, they did have a good time, they had fun, but then later he got in the mail, she wrote him a thank you note for the date, my friend Neil. But on the front of the envelope, it said Steve crossed out, Bill crossed out, John crossed out, <laughs> and then finally Neil. And there's something about that. We love it, don't we? Just sticking it to somebody. Whether it's an ex-spouse who cheated on you, an ungrateful grown child who barely acknowledges you, or a business partner who stole from you, we have to look at our hearts and say, is there bitterness? Is there unforgiveness? And I'm not saying don't hold them accountable. I'm not saying there can't be confrontation but you need to let go. 
You need to forgive. God has been gracious to us. We must be gracious to others. Matthew 6, verse 12 through 14, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Did you notice the first part of that? Forgive, we're asking God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Interesting request. Paul reminds us who was treated very badly by many different people. He says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Our prayers can be hindered by our unwillingness to forgive. But if we will forgive, we can have that intimacy with God. It can remove that barrier of bitterness. And our prayers, um, can, we can see real power in them. I love the story of Franny Crosby, who wrote, this blows my mind, the source I read said about 8,000 hymns. 8,000 hymns? When she was two months old, the story goes that her family doctor, um, the town doctor, was gone, and this other man had come in, and he was uh, pretending to be a doctor. He wasn't really a doctor. And when she got sick as this little two-month-old baby, the parents took her to this pretend doctor, this shyster, and he put this compress plaster on her eyes, and he blinded her. Now, you know how easy it would be to become bitter over that? A lifetime of blindness because someone was committing fraud? And yet, Franny Crosby instead chose forgiveness and grace, and that led to intimacy with God, and allowed, out of that intimacy flowed these hymns that have encouraged people. Blessed assurance, rescue the perishing, And I love what she said. She had a unique perspective. She said, you know, she said that the first person's face I will ever see is my Lord and Savior. And she longed for that day. And so here's the the diagnosis. Doubt, fruitlessness, unforgiveness. And we need to look at that. We need to get serious about those issues. But the good physician, Jesus, prescribes for us faith in God. Mark eleven twenty two simply says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. And so we can have faith in a great big God, a God that spoke and created everything in the universe, a God who um, could give predictive prophecy and hundreds of years before Jesus is sent, give details about his life and his death and his resurrection. It's absolutely incredible. I appreciate a a comment by Mark Batterson who said this about God and prayer. He said, God can accomplish more in one day than you can accomplish in a lifetime. Sometimes we think the church or we in our Christian life, we have to move forward under our own power and our own cleverness and the programs we devise. The reality is God can accomplish more in a moment than we can in a lifetime. And we are to operate in the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we move forward. Christian author said, bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. I'll never forget, we were about to launch Journey Church and so 
Uh, part of how you do it is you have a church in a box. And so we're talking all the sound equipment, all the stuff we needed. We put it in this box truck and, you know, and we would load it up and we would drive it to the Regal movie theater, the only movie theater in town, and we would unload it. And for 12 years, me and my team would unload this box truck and we would take sound equipment which doesn't like to be moved and doesn't like temperature changes in 40 to 60 below weather, uh, below zero, and, and move it in and expect it to work an hour and a half later in the movie theater. Very frustrating. I know it's a sad, sad story. But one of the things that made that work was we had these huge boxes with wheels on the bottom and we put everything in it and you could just roll it in and out and it worked really well. But right before we were gonna launch and we had ordered it months and months ahead, this church in a box, the leader of the um, church planning organization that I work with calls me up and says, look, you gotta push back the launch of your church. Those big boxes, the company can't get it done. And I'm like, we've been advertising for almost a year. We can't push it back. He said, you gotta push it back. You can't get the stuff in and out. I'm like, we will carry it in piece by piece if we have to. And he's like, really, Derek, what's your plan? I said, our plan is we're going to pray. That's our plan. He said, they're telling us it cannot be done. And I kid you not, the truck with all the equipment showed up the day before we launched. We spent that day frantically learning how to put it all together and taking it all apart. And we launched the church the next day. And prayer is the work in some ways. And so I love the stories of faith in the Bible. I love Abraham and Sarah praying for a child and after decades of waiting, they get a child. I just have this image of a, the senior citizen woman sewing maternity clothes. I love that. I imagine David, a uh, great man of faith and prayer being told by God's prophet that he's going to be the next king, but he has to run for his life for 10 years, uh, but he still walked in faith that it was going to happen. Do you pray with a strong sense of expectation? Now, you're not going to get this 100%. I'll tell you one time, I was in college, Taylor University, and I um, I don't know if you can tell, but I have very thick glasses. I'm quite blind, and um, I kind of joke that if you go to the eye doctor, there's my prescription, and right next to it is the you know seeing eye dog. They're just one little jump away, and so I would love to be able to see. Would love it, and so here I was in college, and I said, you know, maybe the Lord wants to give me perfect eyesight. Maybe He wants to do that, and so I prayed about that, and then I I. I, you know, I thought, I got to act in faith. And so I took my contacts and I flushed them down the, the sink. Now, I did have a backup pair of glasses, but I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty bold. I went to bed and fully expected to get up the next day and, and see clearly. God said no. I missed it. So understand that it's not a vending, prayer is not a vending machine. He's not a genie. He's God. But do you pray with expectation? Do you pray that he's going to handle things? I, you know, I, one of the basic prayers of a church planter, let me just tell you, is, Lord, please provide for us. I mean, it's literally me and my wife, four little kids in a minivan going to Alaska. That's what we had. 
and this church and other churches came alongside and helped us, you know, we're praying, you know, how does this, how's this gonna work? And I love the creativity of how he worked this. Like this church had a shower for our nursery and people bought, you know, rocking chairs and changing tables and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's how God answered that prayer. I had um, a time a guy came to my office and he said, so, you know, so we built a building. It's a beautiful building. It's, it's a $10 million building now that we're in, and we've been there about six years. And, but he comes into my office. We're going to build this building. And he says, he says at the end of the conversation, we had, he had all these questions. He said, I- I'm going to help you, okay? And he literally gave us a check like two days later for $100,000. He didn't go to my church. He didn't even live in the state but we had helped a family member of his who did live in Fairbanks. Now, I love to tell this story at my church, and I say, so when you ask to come meet me at my office, I have high expectations, and I I haven't had an office visit in years, but anyway, how how is God going to answer your prayers? He's creative. I'll never forget a church in Kentucky that I served at while I was in seminary, and you know, I show up, um, they had helped some, and I report back, you know, telling them about Journey, and they, they go, hey, we have something for you, and they hand me a check for $16,500. I'm like, what in the world? This is not a huge church. How did you do this? And they said, oh, we did a stay-at-home mission team. Now, this church has sent a bunch of teams that came up and did a bunch of free labor on our building. It was an amazing, incredible gift. This particular church um, had a bunch of guys, and they said, you know what? We're just going to do odd jobs. It was a rural community, and for a couple weeks, we're going to designate this time, and, you know, whatever people pay us, we'll give it to this young church plant. And so they handed me, you know, this check for $16,500. And I'm like, if you had asked me, Derek, how is God going to answer the prayer of, will you provide for Journey Church? Will you provide for this church plant? I would have never come up with 50 guesses a stay-at-home mission team. That, that, just, that just wouldn't have been on my list. And so I love how God works. Most of us pray for provision in our lives. Uh, many of you know my father who was on staff here for decades, and um, he had an aneurysm called a bloody stroke. Uh, this was years ago. And uh, sitting in my house, and my sister, who's a nurse, said, you need to come. We don't know if he's going to make it. And I'm like, okay, well, who's going to preach for me? I'm supposed to preach the next day. How am I going to get there? You know, it's a lot of money the next, you know, right away. And then I look over, and at my kitchen table is a church planter who preaches, who's one of our daughter churches, and he had come for a visit to give a report to us about how things were going in Oregon. He goes, Derek, I'll, I'll preach for you. And I'm like, okay, that's, check that box. And then he goes, you know what, let me check. And he goes and checks his Alaska Airlines miles account. And he had enough ticket, he had enough miles to get me a ticket to Chicago. And I'm like, well, I could drive from Chicago. I have an uncle in Chicago. And my uncle and I, wanted, he wanted to come as well. So we drove down from Chicago. And so my prayer for provision, before I even knew there was a medical problem, it was God put a guy at my kitchen table who could provide. Isn't that crazy? That's the kind of God we serve. 
William Barclay once said, if we have real faith, prayer is a power which can solve any problem and make us able to deal with any difficulty. And in this text, a problem is pictured as a mountain. And it's not that we're to go around declaring mountains should jump into the sea or anything like that. Literally, this is hyperbole, this is symbolic. But the point is, whatever problem you face, God's not surprised and he can handle it. He can take care of it. This is a God who cares so much about you. I'm intrigued. Just Okay, so this is a nerd detour. I'm intrigued at creation and the details of it. I was reading a source that said the human tongue has more than 10,000 taste buds, and they regenerate and replace every two weeks. What? All that effort just so we can taste? God loves you that much. He thinks about you that much. He is a God who wants you to enjoy the things of life. It's absolutely incredible. Um, when we pray, you just it just gives us courage as God answers, and he answers in different ways. I think of, uh, we took our, our kids berry picking uh, to go get blueberries. Of course, Alaska, we have grizzly bears. And so we drive our kids. My youngest was three at the time. And I give the bear talk before we get out of the van to go pick the blueberries. Well, for, unfortunately, my bear talk was a little too effective. And my three-year-old was terrified and wouldn't get out of the van because the bears were going to kill him. Oops, parent fail. But then he came up with an idea. He said, why don't we pray about it? And so we prayed about it. And then my three-year-old, he jumped out of that van. He's like, and he picks up a stick. He goes, I want to go fight two bears. And I love that. I love that childlike faith. Richard Trench once said, praying is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. Too many people view the God of the Bible as the God of no. And he does tell us not to do some things. I think the overarching message is he's the God of yes. Yes to relationship. Yes to wholeness. And so there are stunning results There are stunning results when we embrace faith, when we pray with faith. You know, um, Adam Stettmiller said this. He said, the less we pray, the smaller our lives will be. When we pray, you just never know what God is opening up. Our text again, Mark 11, 23 and 24, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Six times in scripture, we're told by Jesus to pray for anything. John 14, 13 and 14, he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, don't go buy a lottery ticket and start praying about that. That's not the point here. The scripture says he hears us. The scripture says it has to be according to his will, has to be for his glory. Um, But everything's on the table with the creator God. Everything's on the table with a God who can, you know, Jesus can walk out of the grave on this third day. Look in Scripture, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. I'm not going to read it, but notice that the greatest outpouring of the miraculous, the plagues of Egypt, when the uh, Jews were in slavery in Egypt, and God sent ten plagues in order to bring the Egyptian um, 
Pharaoh to his knees to finally release them. It was miracle after miracle. How did that start? It started because the Israelites cried out to God. It was an answer to prayer. In Joshua 10, the sun stood still because Joshua needed more time for a battle. He cried out in prayer. First Samuel, Hannah was barren. She cried out for a child and God gave it. Elijah cries out in the Old Testament on Mount Carmel in a showdown with false prophets of Baal and God sends fire from the sky. Isaiah chapter 38, good King Hezekiah is told by the prophet Isaiah, you're going to die. You're ill, you're going to die. Hezekiah prays and asks for more time, and God miraculously gives him more time. And there's even a miracle with the shadow and the steps to indicate that it was true. Or one of my favorites is in the book of Acts, where Peter is in jail, and God miraculously gets him out of jail in response to a prayer meeting the early church is having in a house. And this is the humanity of it. I love it. So Peter escapes jail through incredible miracle of God comes to the house where they're praying for that escape, knocks on the door, and the woman who comes to the door won't open the door because she doesn't believe it's actually Peter. But I love that. And so I want to encourage you. Let me give you a quick little homework assignment. You know, there's about 650 prayers in the Bible. Find one and pray it regularly. God loves to have you believe his word. Maybe it's a psalm. I'm told that the women here are studying the psalms this summer. Um, I love Psalm 1. I love Psalm 27. There's so many rich psalms in this prayer book of our faith, the psalms. I love this image that we're told in Scripture we go to a throne of grace. It's a reminder that when we go in prayer to God, it's a throne. He's not our waiter. He's not our servant. He's not our genie. He's God and we're not. We go to a throne. His wisdom prevails over ours. But it's a throne of grace, unmerited favor. God wants to bless us. He wants to encourage us. He wants to do what will bring him glory and be best for us. And when we go, anything is possible. If you had talked to almost any political pundit a couple years ago and asked them, would uh, Roe versus Wade be overturned by the Supreme Court? Almost everybody would have said there is no way that is ever going to happen. And yet thousands of Christians prayed for years and decades and the Supreme Court had the backbone to overturn that evil decision and it has saved the lives of thousands of babies. Now, there's still abortion going on. It's like a new phase of the battle. But nobody thought that would happen except Christians who prayed. God can bring down a mountain. God can do the impossible. In Mark 10, 27, Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Helen uh, Resevere, who was a missionary doctor who'd spent 20 years in Congo at an orphanage and a clinic, she'd been there for four years. She never received a package. And she talked about how one time she had a woman who gave birth to a premature baby who died. So the, the woman died. The baby was alive, but they desperately needed to keep the baby warm, and they needed a hot water bottle. This clinic had no electricity, um, and, and so they needed a hot water bottle. The last one had burst. And so this doctor, out of desperation, she went to the kids in the orphanage there, and she said, you know what? This little baby's in trouble. Would you pray with me about this baby and about his older sister who was only two at the time 
Would you pray, you know, they've lost their mom. Would you pray this baby doesn't die? And this little 10-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed. She said, please, God, send us a hot water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow. God, that baby will be dead tomorrow, so please send it this afternoon. And while you're at it, would you please send a doll for the little girl so that she knows you really love her? That afternoon, this missionary doctor who'd never gotten a package from home in four years got a 22-pound package. In it were all kinds of bandages and different items, but there was a hot water bottle, and in the bottom, there was a doll. Sent four months before, we serve a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, has all wisdom. The big idea is that the great physician Jesus says that prayer plus faith is incredibly effective. I want to close with a passage that some theologians call the perfect prayer because I think it helps us. Here is Jesus, and there's this great mystery. We call it the incarnation. Jesus is God the Son. He's fully divine, and he is fully human. And in his humanness in the garden, he is begging God the Father, is there any other way we can save people? Is there any other way besides the cross? Because who wants to go to the cross? He is in such um, agony over this. He is sweating drops of blood. And the answer from God multiple times as Jesus prays this is no. And Jesus prays this, Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I love this prayer. Everything is possible for you. It's a prayer of faith. Take this cup from me. His human side acknowledges, here's, here's what I want, yet not what I will, but what you will. An utter, complete faith and trust in the wisdom of God the Father. Would you leave out the he said and would you read this prayer with me? I want to just do a guided prayer for just a few seconds. Read it with me. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Just take a moment. Think about, do you have a cup in your life? Is there some difficulty, mountain problem that you need to offer surrender? I don't want you to have faith in faith. I want you to have faith in God, the all-powerful, all-wise God of the Bible. I'll give you just a moment to do that. Pray that line silently. that out of one of God's no's comes our very salvation. Let me close this in prayer. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. I don't know what they're carrying. I don't know what they're needing encouragement about, but Lord, I pray that they would be people who are fruitful, who are forgiving, who are filled with faith and not doubt. 
Lord, you have given us this incredible combination of prayer and faith. I pray that we will offer that to you, that we will partner with you in this way to accomplish your purposes in the world. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen. At this time, the worship team's going to take over. And this is when, if you want to accept Christ or if you just want somebody to pray, you want Casey to pray with you, um, this is your opportunity to come forward.